0: Reality Church is a church striving to be biblical. We pray that this sermon would help you in your personal walk. Be blessed. I text uh, Pastor G as I was preparing this sermon. I said, this one is right up your alley. He said, really? I said, yep. We approach false doctrine. We approach false religions. We name names of people that we need to mark and avoid. It's uh, it's right up his alley. He's going to love this. And I hope that you guys understand what we're doing with this sermon. We're trying to stay faithful to what John is telling the church, okay? Um, J.C. Ryle, one of my heroes of the faith, he is... uh, quite possibly one of the best uh, writers of the, of the 1800s to me. I, I, his, his, the things that he wrote are so clear, so powerful and strong. I, I love them. I, I love what he writes. And his sermons are awesome. He said this, We should no more tolerate false doctrine than we would tolerate sin. Let me read that again. We should no more tolerate false doctrine than we would tolerate sin. That kind of links together, right? Because one thing we could all understand is this. False doctrine is sin. Much of this epistle is written targeting false doctrine and counterfeit teachers. That's what John's intention was. And now we're going to start digging into it. You know, we had some, we had some good basis as far as what we were talking about at the beginning. You know, uh, John made sure to give an assurance to church, to loyal church members, to people who, who were faithful members and faithful to the gospel. He made sure to tell them, Hey, listen, I'm not getting you guys, I'm getting these wolves that are coming in trying to get you guys. But I know that you know the truth. But there are times that we got to dig pretty deep. And John's fixing to go there. I want you all to understand something. It is my job and the job of every elder to chase away the wolves from the sheep and to refute false doctrines when we see them. I will be calling out names today. I know many in the modern age say, well, that's not loving to call out names. Well, if you look, Paul called out names. Why do we call out names? Because we need to mark these names and avoid them. Cross them off your list of trusted teachers. Why? Because they teach false doctrines. They teach false teachings. They fleece the sheep. I'm not calling out names because I like controversy or hate anybody. You guys who know me know I don't like controversy for controversy's sake. But we've got to stand somewhere. What I hate is false doctrine. Uh, John Piper is pretty famous for putting out a video where he talks about the prosperity gospel and how false it is and how we're selling a bunch of excrement across overseas called, and we're trying to call it gospel when it's not. I hate it because it leads sheep astray and it harms the advance of the gospel because it gives a false gospel. So let's do it. Y'all ready to dive in? I am. Now hear the infallible, inspired word of God. 1 John two, eighteen through 21 Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. We can count on what it says. We can trust you when you teach these things through your word to us. God, I ask that I would move out of the way that we would see the clear word of God. God, that we would see the veil removed, that we may clearly see who you are, your attributes in this. Holy Spirit, illuminate this path for us your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path we only desire to know what you have said and we know what you have said because you've said it in your word sanctify us by your truth your word is truth in christ's name amen so john has finally brought us back to the theme of his book john has said many great things to help us be assured of our salvation in this To know that he's not talking to us. To know we don't need to love the world and the things of the world. All these things were so great. But now he's getting down to it. His theme is false teachers, false doctrines. And the church being split, led astray, and receiving a bad name by those coming in. What do I mean by the church? Receiving a bad name by those coming in. Paul wrote that... People of the world blaspheme God because of you who, who say you're of one thing and act like another, basically. So when we teach a false doctrine, we lead not only people in the church astray, but we make the world blaspheme us, blaspheme God because of us. That's a heavy weight, a heavy responsibility. We can't stray from what John's saying here, okay? So to do that, we need to take what he is saying in context and not push it out of context because we see a few words that are buzzwords in the modern church. A big example of this happens in verse 18. Let me read verse 18 again. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. First, let's accurately define a couple of terms in context. The context that they are intended in this word that's called being, using hermeneutics. I need to see, first of all, I need to see culture. I need to see what the scripture is saying and what it is in relation to. So we're going to use hermeneutics to try and define these two terms so that we don't get switched up because we see a couple words that kind of stand out to us. There are a couple of terms that have to be defined in context in this verse. The first term, last hour. The second term, antichrists. Those terms need to be identified in this context or we'll veer off into something else that that this isn't specifically saying. Okay. Now, many have made a lot of money twisting up these two terms into something they can write a book about or preach a sermon about. They write the books and the sermons on these signs in America that says this is the last days. And they call each American leader that they don't like the Antichrist. On both sides, right? Obama was the Antichrist, Trump was the Antichrist, Biden's the Antichrist. I mean it probably goes back. I don't know how far that goes back. I guess it's just if it's not your choice, they gotta be the Antichrist, right? <laughs> Why do they do this? I've always wondered that. Why, why, why do they do this? And the best I can figure is it's big money. You look at top sellers in Christian bookstores. It's those ones who have picked out this one thing that they can write. Uh, this is the last day's book on, right? In fact, I want us to, I want us to get serious about it, okay? Because I want us to understand the importance of understanding these terms in their context And understanding what God has said about these things, okay? An entire religion started on the premise that on such and such a day, it was going to be the end. Such and such a year, usually. That religion is called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Do you recognize the name? Some people do, some people don't. depends on who you listen to, probably. Never heard of it. It's uh, commonly known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. That entire religion started based on Charles Taze Russell deciding when the end of the world was and putting out a bunch of tracts. They have literally predicted the end in some form or fashion. They called it different things every time in each of the following years. You ready for this? 1878, 1881, 1914, 1918, 1925, then they skipped a few years, 1975, and then it was just going to be within the 20th century. Okay, let's let's, let's stand back and let's look at this. We're no longer in the 20th century. Has the end come? No. What does that make this? False prophecy, false doctrine. So we need to understand these terms because I don't want us in any way to be deceived by somebody who comes in using these two buzzwords and trying to make it be something it's not. You know what that's called? That's called a charlatan. Somebody who says they know something, but they don't. So don't be be deceived because people will use these buzzwords to get rich because they want you to send them your money so you'll, they'll send you a bucket of rice and beans, right? They'll do that. They're doing it on TBN every day. Don't be deceived. Let's define these terms, okay? Define them. First, last hour. What does it mean in this context? You see, one thing that is essential to understand, this term is putting it into historical context. We don't hear that very much in our our pulpits these days. But we've got to put it in historical context. What did it mean to the people living in that day? What would John's original audience think when they heard this term? The early Christians, make no mistake, knew exactly what John was saying. This was not some mysterious term, the last hour, okay? They understood the concept, and I hope I don't get too deep. If I do, we can revisit some things later together if we need to. The, these Christians, these original early church Christians understood the, the idea of the end of the present age and the beginning of the age to come. The present age had reached its culmination, had reached its, its end, its apex, and was coming to an end. What age? The age of man's relationship with God being determined by his ability to keep the law. It was coming to an end. The, age, the Jewish age was coming to an end. That's not necessarily a popular thing to preach in the pulpit, but it is true. And the age to come had already begun when, at the cross and the empty tomb, the new age had dawned. The age to come was often called in the early church the last days or the last hour. Now, I've recently seen a video of a Of somebody from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society trying to convince the followers of, of, of the Jehovah's Witnesses that, okay, it's still the last days, but now it's the last hour of the last days. What the last days and last hour means in this context is this it is the time from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming, it's the last hour, the last days. That is why that terminology is used so often in the apostles' writings. Now you get those haughty, uh, think they're uh, smarter than the original Bible writers in the original church. They think that the original church was chaos and they didn't know what they were talking about. Okay, let's think about this. They walked with the man himself, Jesus. Do you really think that they didn't know what was going on? They were taught by the apostles in person. Do we really think that they don't know what's going on? It's mentioned in the apostles' writing so often, not because they got it wrong and they thought that the world was going to end at any moment. They had a certain terminology that they used because the age to come had started when Christ died on the cross and rose again. It was the dawn of a new age. And you know what? Physical history changed. How do we know that? We went from B.C. to A.D. Christ split time. They knew that they were in the last days of redemptive redemptive history. You see, the last hour is not some stretch of time that we are constantly wondering if we are in because something happened in Israel... Or something didn't go the way Christians wanted in America. It's not something that we're looking for. The last hour, we are in it. We have been in it since the empty tomb. The early church knew this. So, what does it actually mean in this context? First, we need to understand that though it was terminology that kind of associates with physical time you know it it uses the word hour um there is no biblical physical time constraint to what they are calling the last hour here okay it isn't some specific short time that's coming up we have been in the last days since christ rose from the grave we have been i love how john stott describes it and this is how we need to think of it. It is basically a last desperate stand on the part of Christ's enemies. And it was expected before the consummation. This was taking place. The stage was set for the end. So Christ's enemies in this last hour, they are making their last plays. Just because it's been over 2,000 years doesn't make it less true that we're in the last hour. It doesn't mean that those early Christians were just clueless. They, they knew exactly what they were saying when they talked about it. Okay? They knew exactly what they were talking about. And like I said, that's this context. We don't look at an eschatological, eschatological context for this particular verse because that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the age to come from Christ leaving until Christ returns. That is a time period that is known as the last days or the last hour. And what happens in these last days, last hour? We need to look at the word antichrist. Now that one should be accompanied by ominous music, right? Antichrist. Right? Am I right? Let's biblically understand this word, okay? Because the use here is not necessarily the same usage as what we see uh, the word Antichrist used in the, in the book of Revelation. It's just not. Not the same context. Probably the same grammatical word, but not the same context. We've got to put it... Where it belongs in Scripture and in history, and that that Antichrist in the Book of Revelation—that's a whole different teaching series. There, okay, we're not even going there right now. But Antichrist in this context has a few different meanings that I feel are important and necessary to these writings that he is writing about the specific topic, and we need to understand them. First, let's look at the anti part of the word. That, that means basically two different things in, 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 in grammar, okay? It means either against or substitute. So it's against Christ or substitute Christ, okay? So the first meaning is the idea of those people who are against Christ. The persecutors, right? I mean, Jews and other cultures who come against Christians. Who is one of the first examples we see of an antichrist in scripture? Saul was an antichrist in Scripture. He persecuted the church. Another historical antichrist is Nero. He persecuted the church. So we have that physical persecution as an antichrist idea against the church. Then it's those, and get ready for this one, it's those who claim Christianity yet teach doctrines that are against Christ. They're Antichrist, right? Those that teach works-based salvation, you know what they are? antichrists Those who teach universalism and do away with the cross, guess what they are? Antichrist. And in John's day, there was a big one, and that was the Judaizers. Because they taught that there was no salvation for the Gentiles unless they were circumcised and adhered to the law. That is Antichrist. Because what does Philippians say? We are to put no confidence in the flesh, right? Pastor G, awesome Sunday school lesson we've been learning in the past couple of weeks. Another meaning of Antichrist is substitute Christ. A substitute Christ. We see this in other religions a lot. One that really comes to mind for me is Mormonism. Joseph Smith the founder of Mormonism is elevated to the level of Christ. In fact, he, said to, he actually said, no man has done for this religion what I have done, not even Christ himself. Tell me that's not elevating a new Christ. Or the new age, right? Which elevates consciousness and feelings and nature. the level of being Christ and it's taken it's taken some shape in in the modern church when we talk about Christ consciousness and the universal Christ like Richard Rohr teaches we cannot substitute other things or other people for Christ okay where does it lead where does that lead let me give you some historical examples of where that leads Jim Jones. They called him Papa. He basically said, I am the second coming of Christ. And he led a bunch of people to Guyana in South America. And over 900 people drank the Kool-Aid and were laid out on the jungle floor dead. That's where following uh, Substitute Christ leads you. Or David Koresh. He said... I am the second coming of Christ. Where did that lead? A burning fireball and all of his followers in it. Or Charles Manson. He may not have said nothing about Christ, but he sure made himself one. And he caused his followers to kill people. And now they're in jail and he is uh, gone to his eternal reward. You see, they were substitute Christ. There is only one Savior. There is no other Christ. It's only Jesus. That was already happening in this day. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, if somebody says, hey, look, Christ is here. Hey, look, Christ is there. Why? Because they were saying it. You see... There's another way that we can also see Antichrist in a way that has been going on from the beginning of Christianity until today. Misrepresenting Christ. There are several heresies related to this that began in the beginning of the church. I'm going to give you some of those. I know, I know I'm know, i giving you a lot of... Uh, historical teaching and a lot of outside teaching. I hope you're digging it. I know Jesse is because he loves that stuff. But I hope you're digging this because it's going to help us to understand where we're going here with John, okay? There are several heresies related to misrepresenting Christ, okay? The first one, Arianism. Arius taught that Jesus was not eternal or fully divine. And you want to know why we're so cautious about our songs here? Because Arius spread this heresy by making up catchy songs, diminishing the godhood of Christ. As I I believe it was R.C. Sproul who said that we sing our heresies before we believe them. Then there's Marcionism. They believe that Christ was sent as a result of the real God trying to defeat the evil God of the Old Testament. They think that the God of the Old Testament was an evil creator God and then Jesus came and finally defeated him so the real big God could beat the little God. It's it's odd. It's not in Scripture. I mean, of course we see something like that when we say that we need to Divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. Throw it out and only teach the New Testament. Then there's docetism. They believe that Jesus had no real body. They believe that he was a spirit and that his body was an illusion. Which means that they believe he never actually died. That causes a problem for us in atonement, doesn't it? Because in order for our sins to be forgiven, there had to be a sacrifice. Sacrifice. Then there's Nestorianism. They separated Jesus and Christ. This is making a real big comeback right now in the progressive church. Jesus was the human side and Christ was the divine side and they were separate. Sometimes in the scripture uh, it's Jesus speaking and sometimes in the scripture it's Christ speaking. And we need to trust what the Christ says, not necessarily what the Jesus says because he was the flesh side. Okay. Where do you get that in Scripture? You don't. Then we got Pelagianism. They don't see the need for Christ's sacrifice. They say that salvation can be earned by enough good deeds. You do enough good things on this earth, you're in. That's pretty familiar, right? Then there's adoptionism. This one you may not have heard as much about. They believe... Jesus was a regular man until he passed the test and God adopted him. If you think, wow, that would never fly in today's church. Have I got one for you? Victoria Osteen, Joel Osteen's wife, said this as she was in the pulpit administering The Lord's Supper at Lakewood. Jesus was just a man until God put the Holy Spirit inside of him. You know what that's called? Adoptionism. You know what that's called? Heresy. Jesus was all God, all man, from birth. Period. But what about his baptism where the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove? You know what that was? It was his baptism. Every member of the Trinity was there. And the Holy Spirit came upon Christ because he was fixing to go into the wilderness and face the enemy. Two is much better than one in that battle. We must know the real Christ. So when I hear... I don't need doctrine and theology. I just need Jesus. The first question that comes to my mind is this. Which Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about uh, the one who is the brother of Satan in Mormonism? Are you talking about the one who is Michael the Archangel in Jehovah's Witness? Are you talking about the one who is... uh, Part human, part God. Are you talking about the one who uh, wasn't even God at all until God adopted? Which Jesus are you talking about? Because if you don't know your doctrine of theology, you'll believe any Jesus. That's what John is approaching here. We must know the real thing. John is starting this text with a, with, with, he's starting it with a reminder and a warning. We are in the last hour. We are in the last chance for the enemies of God to come against Christ. And Antichrists are here. We know that it's the last hour because the Antichrists are here. Mark it. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. It is the last hour. Antichrists have come and are in the church at that time and they remain today, Antichrists are a sure sign that the last hour has come. The darkness is constantly making place against Christ and His kingdom. But may I give you the good news. Sorry to spoil the story for you. It's all going to fail in the end. Try as you might, kingdom of darkness, Christ is already victorious. And one day, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that He is Lord. Period. Sorry to ruin the end of the story for you guys, but let's keep going. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Man. Man. Doesn't it sound like he's repeating himself over and over again? Here's why. He's making a very important point. One, one thing he's making a point of is that we can be assured of our salvation if we are in Christ. But this is very familiar something else he's already said. In the Gospel of John. John 6, verse 66 through 71. Doesn't this sound familiar? After this... Listen to this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Who's the him? Jesus. Jesus had said some hard stuff to understand. Had said some things that were very important and essential for them to understand. They heard it and they said, this is too hard for us. And they turned away and walked away from Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve. I love this interaction. Jesus said to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, of course, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did not I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John's talking about people leaving, leaving the faith, right? And never coming back. Disciples. What are disciples? Disciples are people that have learned under somebody. Disciples, people who had been following Jesus, left him because they didn't like one thing that he said. Judas was one of the twelve. He was in all these staff meetings. He was in, in the inner circle. And he betrayed Christ. There are some Who profess things and then leave the faith. You know what the Puritans called them? False converts. John makes it clear here they aren't of us. How can we tell? John says it clearly in this verse. It is plain that they are not of us because they left. Are we going to have moments in our lives possibly where we fall into things and maybe for a season until we repent where it seems like we're not of us anymore? Yeah. But he's talking about people who leave the faith. To bring it into today, and this is something if you're on social media, you see it all the time. I promise you. Those that deconstruct and say that they are no longer Christians are making something very clear to me it's not it's not loving from a lot of people who a lot of people who see this they don't think this is loving to say but if you deconstruct and you leave the faith and say i'm now an atheist guess what you're not of us you were never of us if you can do that why because the spirit of god will keep you you may struggle You may fall into error, into false doctrines at times, but you will ultimately be Christ in the end. Those in the visible church that leave it behind and chase after other religions, other doctrines, or go against Christianity altogether, are falling into the Antichrist trap, is what they're doing. They're believing Antichrist over Christ. That's what they're doing. They're leaving the truth to pursue the lie. And that's what it really boils down to. That's what it boils down to. Verse 20. John will never leave the Christian without a little hope, will he? No matter how hard he's preaching, he will always give the Christian, the the faithful Christian, some hope, he said. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Or you all have knowledge. It's kind of disputed. I would say you all have knowledge because I don't think we have all the knowledge. Do you? First, this verse is making a big distinction. We've been talking about those who left and I said, but that's not you. Who's he talking to? The faithful church member, the faithful Christian who stands no matter what comes his way. The ones who have left the faith are following after Antichrist and those who have stayed in Christ have remained in the faith. Okay? Okay. And there is a reason why. It's it's because it says here that we've been anointed by the Holy One. John just said in chapter 6 who the Holy One is. Who's the Holy One? Christ is the Holy One, right? Charismatics and NAR have made the anointing into something really weird. So we need to figure out what the anointing is. What is it? Scripturally, as it relates to the Holy One, it has absolutely nothing to do with a little bottle of olive oil. Nothing. Whatsoever. Is not some weird thing where you say weird stuff. In scripture, the anointing is the Holy Spirit himself. Acts 10, 38. This is them trying to describe the anointing to, to people they were preaching to. It says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power... He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. The Holy Spirit living within us is the anointing. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit is now on the inside of us sanctifying us. How? How does He sanctify us? I'm glad you asked because that means I get to read to you My favorite verse in all the Bible. Garrett, what's my favorite verse in all the Bible? John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. He sanctifies us in His word. Which means He's sanctifying us in the truth. You all have knowledge. What knowledge? He's just said it. The word of God. That's our knowledge. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. The Holy Spirit always points to Christ and God's word. That's what keeps us in the faith. Knowing Christ and knowing his word. The doctrine and theology of Christ and His Word is the foundation upon which we can build our house. If we build our house upon what God has said, then the storm may blow, the winds may come, the rain may fall. But that foundation will remain solid as long as we build it upon what God has actually said. To be grounded in the word is to have everything necessary to stay in the faith. Verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lies of the truth. Now he's trying trying to say something really specific here. Okay? He's like, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just reminding you, trust what is true so that you can identify the lies. If you know the truth, you will definitely know the lie, right? Jesus himself let his apostles know what the truth is. John 17, 17. God's word is truth. The Christians John writes to here, know the word of God and know the truth. Because they have been taught it by the apostles. They are literally, this letter is the word of God. I watched recently a documentary called The God Who Speaks. And it's talking about the word of God. And one of the the gentlemen who was speaking, he, he, he said something that instantly resonated with me. He said, yes, I believe that the apostles knew they were writing the word of God. That's why it's carefully written, it's non-contradictory. and every word they wrote is the Word of God. and we can trust it. Christian must know the Word of God. It's so important in John's context here. He's talked about Antichrist and that's those things that go against Christ. And what are those things ultimately? what he says here lies if it's not the truth about christ it's a lie we should not follow after lies john says it in this verse basically know the truth of the word so that you won't fall for all the lies the lies are still in the church okay wasn't just in this church I've heard it described by those progressive Christians so often. Man, the early church was chaos. They didn't know what to do. They were trying to figure everything out. No, they had it together because they had the apostles who learned under Jesus. They knew how to have church. It's us who have messed it up. Because we have tried to play to the things that don't matter. Instead of listening to what the Word of God tells us about worship. False doctrines and false teachers pepper all of Christianity. And I'm not talking about folks that have a few things wrong here or there. Or maybe they don't believe the same way we do about a few secondary issues. To me, that's just error. That's not sending you or anybody else to hell. That's probably when you, when you get to heaven, you're going to be like, oh man, I had that wrong. Right? It needs to be corrected. Hopefully the Word of God will correct. But it's not heresy. It's error. Paul Washer said this. He said, I mean, you could be wrong about a lot of things. But if you're wrong about the cross, you are in trouble. So if you're wrong about the cross and the atonement of God and Christ Himself and what it means, you're in trouble. I mean those teaching." False doctrine and heresy. And let me here tell you that I approach the next section of this sermon with a lot of care for you. We must mark and avoid certain people who claim Christianity who claim to be great teachers. We must mark and avoid them. If somebody is teaching a false doctrine, they are a false teacher, and the Bible describes them as a wolf. The wolf does one thing to the sheep. You know what the wolf does to the sheep? Kills it, slaughters it. That's its only hope. I want you to know that I approach this next section of this sermon with much reverence for God. No focus on myself. I want to give you truth. False teachers. A lot of times will have the name prophet or apostle put before their name. Who are fleecing the people of their money and leading them to a different Christ who is not the one of Scripture. That's what's happening. (coughs) Those who say... That we are little gods, like Kenneth Copeland, and Creflo Dollar, and Kenneth Hagin, and Jesse Duplantis. That is heresy. We are not little gods. We're not. Are those who say that we can decree things, we can speak things into existence because we have the authority on earth. And that God can't do anything on this earth without us giving him the power to do it. Or that we have the power and God doesn't on this earth. That he's in charge, he's just not in control. People like Bill Johnson of Bethel. Andrew Womack. Chris Balaton, also of Bethel. And Joyce Meyer. Or those who preach. How awesome you are. And they turn you into the hero of every Bible story. And they say things like, God's got a picture of you on His refrigerator. And they say things like, we don't have to worry about sin because Jesus took care of that. People like Stephen Furtick. Chris Hodges of Highlands. People like Levi Lusko and Judah Smith. And I want you to understand something. As I read those off, I'm reading you people who used to be my heroes. But I cannot stand with heretical teaching. I cannot stand with somebody who says that Jesus changed himself into a different form and became the Holy Spirit. That's called modalism. And that is heresy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in persons, existing eternally, co-equal, co-eternal, each having specific things that they do. And I cannot stand with those who are against repentance for the believer, who say that we don't have to repent anymore because we believe in Jesus. People like Joseph Prince, Lynn Hiles, who has preached in this very pulpit, and Todd White. Can't stand with them. I have not lived a better Christian life than when I finally started realizing I need to repent daily because I sin daily. I'm not walking on air up here. I'm not floating three inches off the ground because I'm a preacher, because I'm a pastor. I'm not... I need to repent daily. And guess what? So do you. And anybody who tells you that you don't have to repent of sin because you're a Christian is a liar. Because John says, if you say that you have no sin, you are a liar. Mark and avoid these people. We must know the true gospel and, re- and reject all the false ones. And there's many more I could call out. Joel Osteen. Uh... I mean, you turn on the TV and pretty much most of them, uh, unless you're seeing Alistair Begg or, (laughs) or somebody like that, John MacArthur, those guys. Now listen, I know this sermon has been a stiff one. I know it has. I know I've raised my voice more than usual. I know that I have named some names. But as your pastor, I must speak God's truth. I have to help the sheep to mark and avoid false teaching. And these are the wolves. And us elders are called by God to chase away the wolves. John Calvin spoke very clearly about that. We have two voices as elders. We call in the sheep and we chase away the wolves. Why? Because we will stand before God and give an account. And I must stand before God and give an account one day. So what can I leave you with as a point of application? This one's going to be pretty simple. You might not have to write this one down to remember. It. Read the Bible. Trust the Bible. Know the truth and reject the lies. John sees the importance of knowing the truth so that you will recognize when you hear a lie. A lot of bankers are trained that way. When they put them in training, what they'll do is they'll give them only real money to feel for a certain amount of time. All they let them feel is the real deal for a while. And then they'll put in that counterfeit one and they'll instantly know the faults because of they've known the truth. That's an example that uh, R.C. Sproul has given, I think. I think John MacArthur has given the same example. If we know the truth, we won't be taken by the lies. Now, I'm going to quote one of the great theologians of our time. Arlie Ray. This is what she says We don't listen to goats, we listen to God. We don't listen to goats, we listen to God. And how do we know that God is speaking to us? How can we hear God speak? How does He speak to us? You know that, don't you, baby? Through the Bible. That's how God speaks to us. We can trust His Word because every jot and tittle, that's what Jesus said, not a jot nor a tittle. Those aren't letters. Those are squiggly marks and dots, okay? Not a jot or a tittle will pass away from this Word until it's all done. That's... The infallibility that Jesus believed the Bible had. And we better believe the same. Don't listen to the goats. The ones telling you those things that we've talked about, these false doctrines. Don't listen to them. Turn them off. Well, they might say one or two good things. No, they are preaching heresy. Turn them off. There are preachers that I don't agree with that I will listen to any day over them. An example would be R.C. Sproul. I don't believe in baptizing babies. He did. But everything else I agree with him on. Sound teaching, the Word of God, that is what will keep us. So, what's my overall thought here? It's this. Know the truth and you will reject the lies. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word, thankful for the truth that we can find in it, knowing that you are the God of all the universe and we can trust you above all things. We know that when the Bible speaks, that means you speak. So, God, help us all to have a heart to listen to what the Word says and not what anybody else says. Father God, we pray for those who are in the world who may not know Christ, who are hearing these false things, or maybe who have rejected the church because of the way things have been said. God, we pray right now for them that they would hear the Word of God, hear the true Gospel of God, and they would be cut to the heart that they must repent and trust Christ before they can take another step. Sinner, run to Christ. He is your only hope. Cling to Him. For the salvation of your soul. Father we thank you for your word. And for this time together. In Christ's name. Amen.